please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Again, that's Matthew chapter 2. Trials are a necessary component of the Christian life. It's through trials that our faith is refined and strengthened. It's through trials that our idols are often stripped away so that the only thing we have left is Christ. In this sense, trials are a necessary component to our growth. But all the same, trials are still very hard to endure. As much as we may understand their usefulness, that doesn't make it any easier to persevere through them. So how do we do it? How do we, how do we persevere through suffering so that we can receive the benefit that trials bring and have their full effect? That's the question that we've been exploring over the past several weeks from the book of James, chapter 1. And last week we saw that the key to perseverance in the face of suffering is hope. Hope is what propelled all the Old Testament saints to be obedient to God's commands. It was what propelled Paul to cross seas and travel to the ends of the earth in order to proclaim the gospel. It's what propelled Christ to go to the cross. Hope is what gives us strength to endure. When the pain of our suffering is great, it's the hope of a greater reward that enables us to push through that pain and remain faithful. At the end of last week's message, I said that because hope plays such a critical role in our growth as believers, we need to learn to think of heaven often. And I said that we need to learn to think of Christ in particular since He is what the hope of heaven looks like. Contrary to what we've been told, the joy of Heaven is not that we get to walk on streets of gold or something like that. It's not even the fact that we get to live forever. No, the hope of heaven is that we get to dwell with God. The sin that separates us from God is done away, and so so He returns to dwell with us in unbroken fellowship for eternity. Now, the only way this sort of hope works is if fellowship with God is appealing. I mean, if that's not a very enticing reward, then it probably isn't going to motivate you to push through suffering, the kind of suffering that you're bound to encounter when you follow Christ. So you really have to want to be with God for the hope of heaven to have any kind of meaningful effect in your life. And so as we close last week, I encourage you not just to learn to think of heaven if you, if you want to learn how to persevere in trials. I, I encourage you to think of what heaven represents as well. And to this effect, I said that you need to think of Christ often. You need to think often of the cross and of the gospel. Because that is where you're going to begin to behold the beauty of the God that you'll dwell with in eternity. Well, tomorrow is Christmas Day. And rather than continue to explore what James has to teach us about how to persevere in trials, I think this is a very good opportunity for us to consider the character of our Savior. This is a good opportunity for us to to pause and behold His beauty as we contemplate His birth once again. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to gaze into the face of our Savior so that we can come away, I hope, refreshed and filled with hope as we consider what eternity is going to be like in His presence. When we consider the Messiah's birth, the first thing we probably think of is the manger scene of Mary and Joseph and their journey to Bethlehem and of the subsequent visit from the Magi. 
This morning, though, I want to reflect not on these events, but on the events that followed shortly thereafter, when our Messiah, our King, began to become personally acquainted with trials and affliction. The title of today's message is A King Made Perfect in Affliction in the passages Matthew 2, 13-23. The story of Christmas resonates. What I mean is that there's something about the story of Christ's birth that captures the attention, that, that draws you in. You see it play out every year at Christmas time. People who would otherwise have nothing to do with Jesus at any other time of year will still attend Christmas programs to hear the story of Christ's birth, or, or they'll visit a nativity scene uh, to see it play out before their eyes. And that's more than just tradition. There's something mysterious about this story, something that captures the imagination. Whether you believe in Jesus as the Christ or not, there's still something about this story that makes it incredibly interesting. A story that resonates to the degree that this one does, I don't know that you can pin that down to just one element or theme. There there are multiple, multiple elements that capture our attention. The idea of the incarnation, for instance, of God entering human flesh and becoming a man, that pulls us in. The expectation of the event, that the birth of this child signals the coming of a golden age of peace. In short, the hope that this birth is supposed to represent, that's another element that arrests our curiosity. But I have to say, I think if there's one element to this story that makes it resonate more than any other, it's the, other, it's the utter incongruity of it all. In other words, it isn't simply the fact that God becomes a man that makes us sit on the edge of our seats with wonder. It's the fact that he enters into the world as a helpless baby the most powerful being in the entire universe and beyond, right? The uncreated one. The one who has always existed and always will exist from eternity past into eternity future is born. And he assumes the form of one of the most helpless creatures in all his creation, an infant child. How strange that idea is, right? How unexpected that is. There's drama in that sort of incongruity. Again, whether you believe Jesus is the Son of God or not, whether you think the story is true or not, that's still interesting. And this sort of incongruity, this contrast between what should be and what is, which surprises us and draws us in, it flows through every element of the Christmas story. Not only is Jesus the Son of God, but the the woman who's chosen to bear Him and become His mother, she isn't who you might expect to be, the mother of God. She isn't a a princess, for instance. At least she's not recognized as one. She isn't noted for her wealth or wisdom or or beauty or anything like that. Uh, Nor is she even noted for her virtue, though she's most definitely virtuous. Fact is, she's not really noted for anything at all. She's just an anonymous teenage girl. She's a girl who's no doubt known and beloved by God. To him, she's she's significant, but to to everyone else, she's a nobody. I mean, that's interesting, right? Mary is a kind of hidden treasure. To outside eyes, she's incredibly common, very unremarkable. No one could ever look at her and guess that she's carrying the Son of God. And that's what seizes us with wonder. She's so near to us. She's so like us. She could be your, your favorite niece. Or the young girl who lives next door. 
And that makes you wonder, could that really happen? Could the Son of God enter into the world like that with such anonymity? Anonymity, or perhaps even better stated, humility, is the the unexpected characteristic that, that marks the entire story of Christ's birth. I mean, this birth signals one of the most remarkable events in human history because in this event, for the first and only time in history, God takes on human flesh, becomes a man, and walks among us. You would expect the pomp and fanfare surrounding this arrival to match the incredible magnitude of this event. And yet, while there are elements of spectacle in the arrival of Christ, for example, you have the expensive gifts that the Magi bring in Matthew 2, you have the proclamation of the angels in Luke 2, at the same time, the events recorded by both Matthew and Luke demonstrate that when God came into the world, He came into the world with the utmost humility. For example, you'd expect the great teacher of the law, you know, the, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy incarnate, you'd expect him to be greeted by the greatest Bible scholars in the land. You'd expect him to be greeted by the very men who anxiously awaited his birth. And yet when Jesus comes into the world, he's greeted only by a few pagan priests who possessed relatively little knowledge of his arrival and, and really barely knew anything about him at all. You'd expect the Savior of the world to be joyfully greeted by the nation He came to save. You'd expect the great King to enter into the world with with celebration and rejoicing as news of His birth is proclaimed throughout Israel. But when Jesus enters into the world, He's virtually ignored by His own people. There's only a few humble shepherds there to greet Him. You'd expect a king to be born in the lap of luxury, surrounded by the wealth of his kingdom, but Jesus enters into the world as the son of a lowly carpenter. He's born into a family so poor that according to Luke, when his family came to make the sacrifice commanded under the law for the firstborn, they had to offer a sacrifice of turtle doves because they were too poor to afford the lamb, which was the preferred sacrifice under the law. And rather being born in a palace befitting of a king, he's born instead in a house so crowded that his parents have to lay him in the animal's feeding trough as a crib. You'd expect the sinless Son of God to be born to a family renowned for its righteousness and upstanding character. And as the readers of the, as readers of the Gospels, we know that they are. We get to peer behind that veil at what God is doing behind the scenes. So, so we get to understand that Mary and Joseph are probably two of the most upright individuals that you could ever meet. And yet the circumstances which surround Jesus' birth are so unusual as to make others regard his mother an adulteress and his father a cuckold. What are we to make of all this? Again, the incongruities in this story make it very interesting. It still still resonates to people of all ages and backgrounds more than 2,000 years later. But what does it mean? How do we interpret these events? Do you know how the first generation that heard this story interpreted it? Do you know what it meant to them? It was a stumbling block. For that first generation of Jews, all these incongruities, what they meant was that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. That He couldn't be the Messiah. They heard about Jesus' humble beginnings and their immediate thought was, this guy's an imposter. He's a pretender, a nobody. 
I think this fact probably comes out most clearly in Matthew 13 when Jesus visits his hometown of Nazareth. While he's there, he teaches in the synagogue, and the people are astonished by his teaching. They recognize there's something remarkable about the things that Jesus is saying and doing, and yet they say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? They just can't wrap their minds around the fact that the boy that they saw grow up in their midst in a a relatively unremarkable way, the same boy that they saw perhaps playing in the street with his friends when he was young, the same boy that they saw grow and learn over time, just like any other boy, the same young man who probably built some of their furniture and farm equipment for them, they just can't believe that he's anything other than the carpenter's boy who you know, built that yoke for their oxen a few years back. I mean, what, what would you think, right, if the plumber who unclogged your toilet last year suddenly began to perform remarkable signs and wonders? I mean, you might think it a strange occurrence, but you certainly wouldn't start to think that he's the savior of the world, right? That was the trouble this first generation of Jews had when they considered the relative anonymity of this supposed Savior of the world. Well, in this morning's passage, Matthew addresses that problem. He he addresses it with three Old Testament quotations in Matthew 2, 13 to 23. You see, it was this very same hometown of Nazareth that became a stumbling block and even a source of mockery for many of the Jews who began to hear reports of this renowned teacher and miracle worker. You know, people would say, hey, have you heard about this young rabbi from Nazareth named Jesus? And, and, and they would reply, Nazareth, what sort of, what good thing can come out of Nazareth? Uh, Nazareth was at best a small, insignificant city, and at its worst, it was a town with a questionable reputation. Nazareth is what we would call the sticks. To have a carpenter messiah from Nazareth, that would be like someone if someone came up to you and said, have you heard about the mechanic named Frank? You wouldn't believe the kinds of things he's saying and doing. You know, I think he might be the savior of the world. You know, a mechanic named Frank, you might say, well, where is he from? Lamar. Lamar, are you kidding me? Frank the mechanic from Lamar is the savior of the world. Yeah, right. That's what this would sound like to ancient ears to say that Jesus of Nazareth was the savior of the world. The term Nazarene or Nazarene began to be attached to Jesus' followers early in the church really as a way of mocking Christians for their faith in this insignificant man named Jesus. It would be like you being called a a, a Lamarite or a Lamarian because of your faith in Frank the Mechanic. It was meant to neutralize Christians' claims at the start, a name meant to show how ignorant Christians were for believing in Jesus. Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah. He came from Nazareth. Come on, people, search the Scriptures. Everyone knows that no prophet comes out of Nazareth. That's what they're saying when they call Christians Nazareans. Again, the name stuck, and Jesus is still known today as Jesus of Nazareth. In this morning's passage, Matthew addresses this issue, and he demonstrates that far from being a reason to reject Jesus, his his Nazarene origins are actually further proof of his Messiahship. 
And once again, he does this with three different references to the Old Testament. Starting in verse 13 and continuing through verse 23, Matthew follows up the Magi's interview with Herod by stating this. Let's read together. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what, was spoke, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region uh, who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was fulfilled what was, uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. The fact that Jesus grew up in Nazareth probably isn't much of an issue for you and I today. It's such an embedded a portion of Jesus' identity that we simply don't question it anymore. If anything, it's expected for us. But for the Jews who first heard the gospel story, this was a major issue. Again, I imagine that probably sounds strange. You probably think, why does it matter where Jesus grew up? Well, the reason why it matters is because of what's written in Micah 5, 2. In Micah 5, 2 to 5, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth... For me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their, their peace. You look at this passage, Micah 5. 2 to 5, and it's clearly Messianic. And this deliverer, Micah says he comes from Bethlehem. Now, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Matthew tells us back in verse 1 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Luke actually tells us that, that Joseph lived in Galilee, in Nazareth actually, that he went up to Bethlehem to be counted as part of a census that was ordered by Caesar Augustus. So, so Luke gives us more details about how Jesus ended up in Bethlehem. Matthew doesn't give us that background information. He just assumes Bethlehem as the place of birth. And then in this passage, he tells us how it came to be that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. This is important because all the average person is going to know about Jesus at the point in history when Matthew's writing this. All they're going to know is that Jesus grew, grew up in Nazareth. He hails from Nazareth. And as the crowds point out in John 7, as they debate among themselves, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? 
and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. Again, this was a major stumbling block for the average Jew at this time. The Bible clearly said the Messiah had to come from Bethlehem, and the best they knew, Jesus was from Nazareth. So he didn't match the qualifications. In this account, Matthew not only explains how it came to be that the son of David would grow up in Nazareth, but he also tells us how we should interpret these events, the events that brought this about, with these three Old Testament references. First, he, he tells us how the son of David came to reside in Nazareth for most of his childhood, rather than in the city of his father's, the place of his birth, Bethlehem. And the answer to that issue is Herod. Now, there are multiple Herods in the New Testament. This particular Herod, though, is the original Herod, the one that all the others are named after. He's known as Herod the Great. Herod has retained the title of Herod the Great in history because, on one hand, he was actually a fairly brilliant man and an incredibly skilled ruler. He's actually one of history's most gifted architects, having built some of the most amazing structures of his time. As a politician, he managed to curry the favor first of Mark Antony and then later his rival Caesar Augustus when it was politically convenient to do so. In fact, although he was an Edomian, basically an Edomite, and so not a Jew, he still managed to successfully maintain control of Israel for well over 30 years. That's a feat practically unheard of in Israel. It's an infamously difficult region to control, and it has been throughout, reason, throughout history. Herod, though, he managed to do it. How did he pull it off? Well, he pulled it off with equal parts cunning and treachery. How do you maintain control of a volatile and violent territory? Uh, it's simple. You're, you become more volatile and violent than everyone else. And that was Herod. For example, just to give some perspective here, Herod married into the Hasmonean family, which was a powerful family of priests that had previously ruled over Israel. And and he did this in an effort to to consolidate his political power. Well, after he married into this family, he then proceeded to wipe them all out, including his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, and then eventually even his own wife, who, it is reported, Herod actually loved. Herod also killed three of his sons, because he suspected they they had tried or would try to seize his throne. Herod even ordered one of them to be killed while he was on his own deathbed, just five days before he died. This was a man who simply knew no boundaries. In fact, Herod was so cruel that he knew that he was hated by the Jews. And so he ordered thousands of Israel's most prominent citizens to be killed upon his death for for no other reason than to guarantee the fact that there would be genuine mourning in Israel upon his death. This was a twisted individual. But it was that kind of ruthlessness that allowed him to maintain his power. In other words, there's a reason why it says back in verse 3 that when the Magi came asking about the location of the king of the Jews, that Herod was troubled and, quote, all Jerusalem with him. I mean, could you imagine what Herod would have thought when the poor messenger brought him news that there were these foreign dignitaries looking for the one born king of the Jews, not an Edomite, the one born king of the Jews, the real king of the Jews. I mean, when Herod discovers such a blatant threat to his throne, there's no telling what he's about to do. Of course, all of Jerusalem is going to be disturbed along with him. 
Once Herod discovers that this child born king of the Jews is residing in Bethlehem, there's no way that he can stay there as long as Herod is alive. It isn't safe. So as the story unfolds here in verses 13 to 23, Matthew explains how Jesus came to live in Nazareth. In verses 13 to 15, Matthew explains that an angel appeared to Joseph, warning Joseph that Herod had set his sights on destroying Jesus. The angel then tells Joseph to flee to Egypt out of Herod's jurisdiction until Joseph should be instructed to return. As Matthew explains it, Joseph obeys immediately. He packs up his family and he leaves for Egypt. It doesn't take long for Herod to act on his destructive intent. Bethlehem is only about six miles south of Jerusalem, meaning it should not have taken very long for the Magi to return to him with their report about the location of the Messiah. However, as Matthew explained in verse 12, the Magi were warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod. Herod would have realized pretty quickly that the Magi weren't coming back. Again, you can only imagine that the anger that this madman would have felt when he first realized that the Magi had deceived him by departing from Israel through a different route. Realizing now that he won't discover the specific identity of the child, Herod makes a move to destroy this threat to his throne, and he's incredibly thorough. Ascertaining from his conversation with the wise men that the child must be no more than than a couple of years old, Herod decides to execute all the male children beneath that age. And not only in Bethlehem, but also in all its surrounding regions. He's going to make sure he gets him. Again, Herod was incredibly brutal when it came to maintaining his power, and that's what we see here. He's willing to slaughter little children, infants, who he knows to be innocent, just to make sure that the threat to his throne won't survive. Of course, Herod's plan fails, because by this point, Joseph is safely in Egypt. Joseph remains there until after Herod's death. At this point, the angel again appears to Joseph, tells him to return to Israel because Herod has died. It appears that Joseph originally intends to return to Bethlehem to, to raise Jesus in the city of David. But somewhere along the line, he learns that Herod's son, Archelaus, is reigning in place of his father in Judea. This was a cause of great concern for Joseph because history tells us that Archelaus was not much better than his father. As Joseph hesitates, and he's, he's warned once again through a dream. This time he's told to settle in Galilee, which is a region of Israel under control by another of Herod's sons, Herod Antipas. This was outside of Archelaus' jurisdiction. Joseph would be relatively safe here. Thus, Matthew explains how it came to be that Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, came to be known as Jesus of Nazareth. Again, this would have been an important detail for any Old Testament believing Jew to know because it explains how Jesus could fulfill Micah 5.2 while still being known as Jesus of Nazareth. Very important piece of information. Now, this is where Matthew takes it a step further. This is where he not only explains how Jesus came to live in Nazareth, but, but why this fact actually strengthens the case for his messianic credentials. There's these three Old Testament references in this passage. If you look here in verse 15, Matthew says that Joseph took Jesus um, to Egypt and that this occurred in order to fulfill what was spoken, uh, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, in verses 17 to 18, he says that the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem fulfilled, quote, 
what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Then in verse 23, Matthew says that Joseph's decision to live in Nazareth uh, occurred, quote, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And what's odd about these references is that none of them, not a single one of them, seems to use the word fulfill in the way that you and I would normally think of the word fulfill. Uh, When you and I think of this word fulfill, we probably think of it in the sense of predicted events, uh, which find their corresponding realization at a later date. Like the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and this was then fulfilled at the beginning of chapter 2 when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. That's the way we typically think of this idea of fulfilled. But it doesn't appear that that's the way that Matthew's using this word here, because when you go back and look at these verses in their original context, what you find is that none of them were actually predicting anything. So there isn't really any sense in which Jesus would have fulfilled or completed these Old Testament verses in any sort of future sense. For example, look at verses 13 to 15. These verses explain that Jesus was sent into Egypt in order to fulfill Hosea 11.1. Hosea 11.1 reads, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The verse is past tense, and in its context, it reflects upon the Exodus when God brought actual national Israel out of Egypt. Hosea 11.1 isn't predicting the future in really any way. It's describing a past event. Look at verses 16 to 18. These verses explain that the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem occurred in order to fulfill Jeremiah 31.15, which originally states, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Again, there's nothing predictive about this verse. Although this verse says that Herod killed the children not only in Bethlehem, but also in all the region around Bethlehem, this, possi- this can't possibly find its fulfillment in the time of Christ. You see, Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem. Ramah is about five miles north of Jerusalem. It just doesn't make any sense that this morning would be literally fulfilled in this verse. So why is there weeping going on in Ramah? Well, historically, Ramah was the location where the exiles were gathered before they were shipped off to Babylon. And we see evidence of this in Jeremiah 40, verse 1. Again, this verse here in Matthew is Jeremiah 31, 15, and the rest of Jeremiah 31 explains that God will restore and comfort Israel at the end of their exile. You see, this is what Jeremiah 31, 15 is referencing. It's referencing the original exile to Babylon. So again, this verse is past tense. Rachel's figurative sorrow was expressed historically at Ramah as the exiles departed for Babylon almost 600 years before. Now look at verses 19 to 23. These verses explain that Joseph's return happened the way it did so that Jesus uh, was to be raised in Nazareth and that uh, that this fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets, quote, that he shall be called a Nazarene. The problem with that reference is that there isn't a single Old Testament statement about Nazareth. 
let alone one that, that says that the Messiah would be born there or, or grow up there. How then can Jesus fulfill a prophecy about Nazareth that doesn't exist? Again, there really isn't any way that we can say that Jesus fulfilled any sort of predictive element in these verses. So what's Matthew doing with these references? Well, I think the answer comes down to the range of meaning found in this word fulfilled. The word plerao in the Greek, uh, that's the word that's translated as fulfilled, plerao. It means to fulfill, to complete, to fill up, or to bring to an end. You can plerao a net with fish, for instance. You can fill it up. That's more or less what this word means. It's the idea of fill up or bring to completion. So how, how's Matthew using this word? Well, you could say that Jesus somehow ended some non-predictive Old Testament pattern or that he demonstrated the highest form of this particular pattern. For example, uh, in Genesis 15, Abraham, uh, God tells Abraham that before he brings uh, Abraham's descendants into the promised land, he says they're going to be in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And he says the reason he'll do this is because, quote, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And the word for complete there is a form of plerao in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's anaplerao, and it means to make complete. And what God means is that they've not yet, the Amorites have not yet filled up the full measure of their sins. This sense means fill up, almost in the sense that you could fill up a cup. A cup may be three quarters full of water, but, and then when you come and add to that the last measure of water, you filled it. Even though you only added a quarter of the water to the cup, that last little bit was needed to fill the cup. You finish it off. Perhaps Matthew means that Jesus fulfilled these verses in this sense. Or perhaps he means it in the sense that Jesus demonstrated the highest form of some particular Old Testament pattern. For example, I could say something like, you know, the cross fulfills, it fulfills the meaning of love. And I would be saying that the cross is the highest demonstration of love that you could possibly find. It epitomizes love. I'm not saying that the cross fulfilled the predicted meaning of love. And I'm not saying that love was demonstrated before the cross and the cross just gave it a little bit of extra it needed to be complete. Rather, I'm saying that while there are many acts of love love before, this single act of love by itself demonstrates the full measure of what love can ultimately mean. It's the highest expression of it. The problem is that neither of these definitions seems to fit any of these references either. We can't say, for example, that Jesus' return from Egypt somehow filled up the last full measure of God's deliverance of his people. The return from Egypt doesn't say that, right? Nor can we say, for instance, that the Exodus was merely a foreshadow of the pattern of deliverance orchestrated by God and that the greatest demonstration of this deliverance is the rescue of Jesus from Egypt. And we can't say that the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem somehow filled up the last full measure of Israel's suffering. Nor can we say that this event is in some way the ultimate demonstration of Israel's suffering. So then if Jesus doesn't fulfill these verses by by bringing about a predicted event, and if he doesn't fulfill these verses by bringing about some sort of end or completion to the historical events described in these verses, then how did his 
you know, uh, uh, exile to Egypt, his return, being placed in Nazareth. How does all of that fulfill these verses? I think the key to understanding these verses is the third prediction. The one that occurs in verses 19 to 23, when, where Matthew says that Joseph's decision to settle in Nazareth occur, occurred, quote, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. There are a couple things to note about this reference. First, note that Matthew doesn't say prophet, singular, here, but prophets, plural. Second, you can't, you can't catch this in the English transition, t- translation, but, but, but Matthew introduces this statement um, in quotation marks here. He shall be called a Nazarene. He, he introduces this statement different than he, differently than he does with the other verses. And really, the way he introduces it here is probably done to indicate that he's not giving a direct quotation. Ancient Greek doesn't have quotation marks. Direct quotes are implied rather than given explicitly in the text. And it's more likely from the way that Matthew introduces this particular quotation that he's showing that he's trying to paraphrase a a statement rather than give a direct quote. I've translated actually the second half of this verse this way, uh, in order that which was said through the prophets might be fulfilled, that he will be called a Nazarene. No, no quotation marks are in that translation, by the way. In short, it would appear that Matthew is not quoting a single book of Scripture when he makes this statement. He's quoting several. So the statement that is made here is characteristic of several Old Testament writers. So what's going on here? What's Matthew doing? Well, Isaiah 11.1 1 says this. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This verse says that after the house of David has been almost completely cut down, and after it appears that the house has been completely destroyed from the very base of what's left over, a little sapling will spring forth from its roots that will restore the house of David. This verse refers to the coming Messiah who would himself be a descendant of David that would restore the throne of David in Israel. Well, what's interesting is that the Hebrew word for branch in that verse, the word that refers to this coming Davidic descendant, it's the word netzer. And many think that this is where the name Nazareth came from. Isaiah 11.1 was a very well-known verse. Many think that it's more than possible that so many Davidic descendants settled in this region of Galilee after the exile that it picked up the name Nazareth, Nazareth. Essentially, there were so many Davidic exiles there that they called the town kind of the equivalent of Branchville. In other words, it would seem that as, as Matthew reflects on the fact that Jesus hailed from Nazareth, he really can't think of a better place for the Messiah to come from. You see, the prophet stated that the Messiah would be this tiny, insignificant branch that would spring forth from the remnants of David. They spoke to the fact that he would even come from insignificant origins. In fact, while many thought the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, there was debate, there was this competing thought in Israel that where some said they didn't, they, that, that they didn't think they would know where he was from. Uh, you see this come out in John 7, uh, 27, as the crowds debate about Jesus. Some of them say, we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. 
Some think that this belief existed in part because of the Messiah's insignificant origins. He's a, he's a little branch. Now, nowhere does the Old Testament say that the Messiah had to be from Nazareth, but, but here's this man born in Bethlehem, even though nobody realizes it. And he's a, he's a Davidic descendant that, believe it or not, comes from this insignificant town actually named Branchville because of a bunch of Davidic descendants, exiles, settled there. In fact, even more than this, in accordance with the words spoken in Zechariah 6.12, which said that the Messiah would be called Branch, this man is known as Jesus the Nazarene. I should probably point out that the word for branch in Zechariah 6.12 is the word Sema, not Netzer. It's a different word for branch, but all the same, Jesus is literally referred to as a kind of branch. He is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus from Branchville. I mean, while the Old Testament never explicitly said that the Messiah had to come from Nazareth, how does this fact still not point to the idea that this man is God's chosen Messiah, Right? Again, Jesus' Nazarene origins don't necessarily prove that he's a Messiah, but they certainly don't hurt either. I think this verse can clarify much of what Matthew's doing with these references. Uh, First, I think it shows us that part of the problem we experience when we approach these references is that we're moving in the wrong direction. It's not that the Old Testament points ahead to the life of Christ in these references. Rather, it's that these events that take place in Jesus' life point back to these Old Testament passages. The prophets didn't point, didn't point ahead to Nazareth, but Nazareth certainly pointed back to the prophets. Likewise, the Exodus didn't point, didn't point ahead to Jesus' entry into Egypt or his sonship, but Jesus' entry into Egypt does point back to the Exodus. In other words, the way Matthew is using these references, it's not that the Christ, that Christ is the pattern And the Old Testament conformed to this pattern to point ahead to him. Rather, the idea is that the Old Testament is the pattern, and God conformed Christ's life to these Old Testament patterns in order to point back to them. As such, these these portions of Jesus' life don't teach us something about the original meaning of these Old Testament verses. Rather, it's that these Old Testament verses teach us something about Jesus' life and how to understand it. What it means is that these verses don't prove something about Jesus' messiahship. Again, they weren't in any way predictive. However, they do explain the significance of various aspects of Jesus' life that people were calling into question. Put it another way, Jesus' flight to Egypt doesn't help explain the original meaning of the Exodus. Rather, the original meaning of the Exodus helps us understand the significance of Jesus' flight into Egypt. Matthew's use of fulfilled here is looking backwards. The the smaller event, which actually occurs in Jesus' life, that smaller event took place in order to be explained by the bigger event so that the bigger event could tell us something about the character of Jesus. The second thing, the the way Matthew's using these verses works, I think this, this third reference, which is made up of a of a conglomeration of different Old Testament passages, I think it shows us that Matthew is painting with a broad brush here. So we shouldn't get caught up in the individual Old Testament references and what they mean and lose sight of the big picture of what Matthew is presenting. In other words, I don't think these Old Testament references are to be read individually. They're to be read together. 
Keep in mind that this section is really all one unit. It's one story. I mean, in in verses 19 to 20, even uses much of the exact same language as verses 13 to 14. These 11 verses are a single unit. And within these 11 verses, Matthew quotes three Old Testament references that are to be read together. So what's the picture they paint? Again, keep in mind that this is a story that explains Jesus' Nazarene origins. As Matthew explains this story, he explains that Jesus' flight into Egypt was a picture or illustration of God's greater deliverance of Israel. Again, the theme is escape. In other words, the the parallels indicate that God rescued Jesus in much the same way that he rescued Moses and Israel from the hands of Pharaoh. Right? Jesus was delivered from Herod in the same way that they were delivered from the hands of Pharaoh. In the same way, the destruction of the infants was a picture or illustration of the greater suffering of Israel during the exile. Finally, Jesus' eventual hometown in Nazareth is a picture or illustration of the Messiah's insignificant origins. Do you know what the consistent theme is between these three events, these three references? It's the idea of remnant. The consistent theme is God's preservation of a remnant. God preserved Israel from the persecution of Pharaoh, and he preserved, he preserved Jesus from the destruction of Herod. God preserved Jesus from the, from the destruction in Bethlehem, just like he preserved the Israelites from their utter destruction during the deportation. Finally, the very hometown that God brought Jesus to was named after the branch of the stump of Jesse, a branch that was itself a remnant of a much larger tree that was cut down. Jesus' humble Nazarene origins are not, therefore, a case against Jesus. Rather, the circumstances surrounding the origins point to the fact that Jesus is God's preserved Davidic remnant. It's consistent with the idea that he's the tender shoot, the insignificant little branch springing forth from the line of David, which was nearly entirely destroyed by Herod's destruction in Bethlehem. After he was nearly cut off, God protected and preserved him in the same way that he protected Israel in their past persecutions. And then he sprang up from these insignificant origins. God preserved the Davidic remnant. You see what's happening here? People look at Jesus' insignificant origins, and they think it points to God's rejection of Jesus. Matthew looks at Jesus' insignificant origins, and he sees God's incredible favor on display. People look at Jesus' insignificant origins and and they think it points to incompatibility with God's revealed Old Testament plan. Matthew sees God's plan on display in perfect harmony. God always intended to save a remnant. The smallness of Jesus isn't a sign of God's rejection. It's a demonstration of God's plan faithfully and consistently fulfilled. There's this argument that, that Jesus can't be the Messiah. After all, he comes from Nazareth. He doesn't, he doesn't fulfill the prophecies. And he's just plain too insignificant to be the Messiah. Matthew's response to all of this, this is to essentially say, and he's saying this to his fellow Jews, he's saying, hey, hey, wait a second, have you even read your Bible? I mean, haven't we always been dis, uh, displaced from our homelands? Aren't we a persecuted people? Aren't we an insignificant people? Didn't the Bible always said the Messiah would be this way too? I mean, God promised Abraham the land of Canaan, right? Well, where did we start before God gave us the land of Canaan? We started in Egypt. 
We were supposed to be in Canaan, but we ended up in Egypt before God gave us Canaan. Did that mean that we weren't God's chosen nation when we were in slavery? Was it a sign that God rejected us as his children? No, right? Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. We were still children then. Guess what? Does the fact that Jesus had to flee to Bethlehem mean that he isn't God's Messiah? No, if anything, it means he became conformed even more so into the mold befitting of the Messiah by himself enduring the persecution and deliverance that we as a people have experienced. And as Jews, are are we where we're supposed to be? Where Where are we supposed to be? What was promised to us? Again, it's the land of Canaan. Where are we? Better yet, where are you, Jews in Antioch, to whom I'm writing? Where are you, Hellenistic Jews that I'm writing to? Not in Canaan. Has God rejected you? Who rules over our land right now? It's the Romans. It's guys like Herod. Has God rejected Israel? Did God reject us when we were deported from the land, when foreign rulers gathered us at Ramah and shipped us off to distant lands? No, we were still children of God then, and we still are now. So does the fact that Jesus had to flee Bethlehem, does that mean that he isn't God's Messiah? No, if anything, it means he became conformed even more so into the mold befitting of the Messiah by enduring the persecution and preservation that we experienced. Israel's insignificance doesn't point to their rejection, right? It points to God's grace to them. It points to God's choice of them. In the same way, Jesus' insignificant Nazarene origins aren't proof against his Messiahship. If anything, it actually points to God's choice of him. Those events were part of the process that actually perfected him for this role. As the Messiah, Jesus became an insignificant, persecuted, displaced man, and this is precisely what makes him the perfect ruler for the insignificant, persecuted, displaced people called Israel. Matthew is saying, look, he's saying, Jews, we ourselves are a persecuted but preserved remnant. And that's what Nazareth points to about Jesus. He, too, is a persecuted but preserved remnant. It was fitting that before he would deliver us, that he would become one of us. That's really the way Matthew is using fulfilled in these verses. And Matthew's use of these verses, as strange as it may sound for me to say this, It isn't the Old Testament that's being fulfilled in these verses. It's it's not the Old Testament that's being in some way completed through Jesus' origins. The Old Testament isn't the object of completion. The object of completion, rather, is the Messiah. The Messiah is being fulfilled, completed through these events, events which conform him to the nation of Israel. In other words, the fulfilling that is taking place isn't the completion of Scripture, it's the completion of the Messiah In other words, I would describe Matthew's use of fulfilled here as something akin to the argument that the author of Hebrews uses in Hebrews 2, 10 to 11, when he says regarding the Messiah, he says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctifies all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And as the author continues in Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What's being said there is that Jesus was chosen by God to serve as a, a high priest for the people he was sent to save. A high priest functions as a mediator between God and man. He represents both. Therefore, as the argument goes, it was fitting for Jesus as this chosen high priest to become a man and even to suffer as a man for his people, to even be perfected or completed through this suffering, in the words of the author of Hebrews. How is Jesus perfected or completed for this high priestly role through his suffering? Because as he suffers with his people, he represents, as he experiences temptation along with them, he is not only able to offer himself up as an appropriate sacrifice as a man on behalf of of men, but he's also able to completely represent his people before God as one who has experienced their weaknesses with them. As it says in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Does this mean that Jesus became help, uh, became helpful because he learned that he because he learned how to fight temptations in ways that he didn't know before he became a man? Does this mean that God is is not able to fully understand what it means to suffer as a man without becoming a man? Is that what the author of Hebrews is saying? Of course not. Jesus knew all things before he became a man, and God inherently knows all things. So how is Jesus made perfect? Through his suffering, according to verse 10, how is he able to help those who are undergoing temptation because he has been tempted, according to verse 14? What changed? What changed is that by experiencing these sufferings himself, he thus qualified to function as their priest. As much as Jesus understood about temptation before becoming a man, he was not yet our high priest because he was not yet fully one of us, and only after becoming fully one of us could he serve as our mediator. Therefore, although Jesus understood how to, bec- how to overcome temptation before, by suffering temptation himself, he thus became fully one of us and is so able to function as our representative, our priest. As it says in Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. That's what's going on. If Jesus, if Jesus is going to function as our high priest then he had to become like us in every respect. And so, as he suffered, he, note this, as he suffered, he was perfected, completed for the office through his suffering. To be qualified to serve as our high priest, he had to become like us, and this included our suffering. So as he suffered, he was perfect or completed for this office. That's the way that Matthew's using fulfilled here. The events surrounding Jesus' origins fulfilled or completed the Christ by paralleling these Old Testament events. 
By saying Jesus fulfilled these Old Testament verses, Matthew is not saying that Jesus fulfilled some necessary predictive element about the Messiah in these verses. Rather, Matthew is saying that these verses demonstrate that it was fitting for the Messiah, who is to be the king of a displaced, suffering, insignificant people, to first become like the people that he was sent to lead in every way by experiencing displacement, suffering, and insignificance himself. This is ultimately what the incongruities surrounding the Messiah's birth point to. This is how Matthew says we should interpret them. What they point to is not a man who has been rejected by God, but rather a Savior who has been made in every way like us through suffering. You know, we've been talking a lot about trials over the past few weeks and how hard it is to persevere in trials. Well, guess what Christmas should remind you of? It should remind you that all the pain and the suffering that you go through, Christ has gone through. Are you poor? Are the finances tight? Do you stress about money? Well, Jesus knows what that's like. His first bed was a manger. His parents were so poor they couldn't offer the preferred sacrifice under the law to celebrate his birth. Instead, they had to abide by the prescription of the law made for the poor. That's the home he grew up in. Is your health failing? Are you struggling through some type of sickness? Jesus understands that too. When he became a man and took on flesh, he took on all our infirmities as well. His humanity means that he too got to experience what it's like to inhabit a body that sometimes fails you. Perhaps someone is treating you unjustly. Someone is sinning against you. And the wounds go deep. And you hurt terribly bad. Jesus is not unacquainted with this kind of suffering. Not only would he eventually die on a cross at the hands of sinful men, but from the moment he was born, he was persecuted unjustly. So he knows what that's like fact is, from the first moment of his life to the last, from the first moment of his life to the last, Jesus suffered trials. Jesus suffered temptation. And yet the scripture says he was without sin. Do you know what this means? Well, first and foremost, it means you have a Savior who is able to come to your aid and provide help. That's help in the sense of atonement, certainly, because He's made like us, right? He can serve as a covering for our sin, but that's also help in the sense of what that covering provides, and that's access to God. You know how I've said that if we, if we need wisdom in trials, then we just need to ask God, and He'll grant it to us? That's what James tells us in James 1, right? Well, guess where that access comes from? It comes from the access that Jesus provides on account of His sacrifice, because He suffered with us. To quote Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you don't have to go through trials alone. You can go through them with the help of a Savior who not only understands your suffering, 
but who's also able to intercede before God on your behalf. And let me tell you why that matters. That matters because all this suffering, Jesus took it on willingly. As you celebrate Christmas with your family tomorrow, I want you to keep this in mind. Many of you will gather with your families tomorrow, and and tomorrow won't be a time of suffering. It'll be a time of celebration. It'll be a time of fellowship and enjoyment. It'll be a day of comfort and joy. Jesus had all that and more in heaven. But he left it all to be born in a manger and suffer pain from the moment of his birth to the moment of his death. And again, do you know why he did that? He did that so that you can have many more days like tomorrow. He did it so you could be reconciled to your heavenly Father and experience joy in His presence. Do you understand? He did it because He loves you. And again, I want you to keep this in mind tomorrow because I know that while tomorrow can be a day of joy for some, it can also be a day of pain for others. You know, Christmas is a day for family. Maybe you won't be with your family. And you'll sit around thinking about the loved ones you miss. Christmas is also a day of tradition. We have strong memories associated with Christmas. So perhaps you'll be reminded of those who are no longer with us tomorrow. Christmas itself, actually, believe it or not, for many people, can become a kind of trial. As we we mourn those that we've lost or as we miss those that we love. Well, if you remember last week, I said that the way that we persevere through trials is with hope. And the way that we gain hope is by thinking often of the sort of God that we're going to be reconciled with in in heaven. Christmas is a sign of that hope. It's a reminder that the God we serve is a good and merciful and understanding God. And so as dark as things might be right now, you can endure with hope because you have a tremendous future awaiting you. These are the kinds of realities that the incongruities of Christmas Day point to. They point to a Savior who has become like us in order to suffer with us. They point to the access that we have to God who's promised to help us in our weaknesses. They point us to a God who loves us and to a glorious future that we have awaiting us in heaven. And so as you celebrate tomorrow, no matter what your individual situations are, you can celebrate and hope.